thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege we have to open it today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, just want to say happy Father's Day to, to all the dads out there. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm so thankful for, for my dad. One of the things my dad taught me by his example was the value of God's word. Uh, every day he would be up before the rest of our family reading the Bible, praying. And probably the greatest influence in my life uh, was from the age of 13 till the time I went off to college at 18 was every morning studying the Bible with my dad. Just he and I one-on-one, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Listen, dads are important. What you as dads do can shape the direction of your entire family, for good or for ill. Dads do a lot for their kids, right? You, you provide, you tell corny jokes. Um, I started the dad jokes before I became a dad. I just, I like corny jokes. They're, I follow a page on Facebook that just gives me daily dad jokes, and I give them to Rachel, and she's just like, oh, that's awful. I, I like that kind of thing, right? That's what dads are for. Dads work countless hours. They teach their kids how to play catch. They correct, they support, they encourage, they discipline, they teach, they, they give an example. And all those things are important. All of those things, dads just should be doing those things. They're crucial. But listen, the most important thing that a dad can do for their child is give them the example of following Christ. It's to say, son, follow me as I follow Jesus. Not a do as I say, not as I do, but a do it like I do, son. I'm following Jesus. No, not perfectly, but I am following him genuinely. And if you follow Jesus like I follow Jesus, you'll be going in the right direction. That's what this text is about. It is about being a disciple. We had that refrain three different times. Did you catch it? Jesus says, if you don't do such and such, that person cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. Three different times. That's what this paragraph is all about. It's all about being a disciple, being a learner. That's what that word means. Being a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Now, the, the application here is not just for dads today, but I think it has unique application for dads. Dads, if you are not following Jesus as a disciple, you cannot lead your kids where you yourself are not going. You cannot lead your home where you yourself are not going. So while the application here is for, obviously for, for every individual in this room, it has particular impact, particular weight for dads. For the leaders of the home. Remember, God has appointed you dads to be the head of your home. It doesn't mean you get to be the king to be like I sit on my throne and people serve me and peel grapes for me as I watch TV and hold the remote. But it is servant leadership, right? It is headship that is for the good of those over whom the Lord has placed you. So in this text, Jesus calls us to follow him as disciples. Now the previous passage we looked at, we looked at the first part of Luke 14 last week. Is all about the freeness of the gospel's offer. We saw how there was a great man who had a banquet who just says, come, every, everybody come. And the, those on the highways and the hedges compelled them to come. Everything is ready. Picturing the gospel, picturing the kingdom. It talks about the freeness and the lavishness and the graciousness and the generosity of the gospel's offer. Luke deliberately puts this paragraph right after the previous paragraph to emphasize an important but complementary truth. Yes, the gospel is absolutely free, and forgiveness is because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. The meal is ready. Just come and eat. But coming to Jesus also is very costly. So you notice in verse 26, 
Jesus says, if any man come to me, there's that word giving us a verbal link back to verse 17. He said to those who are bidden, come. All things are now ready. So the meal has been purchased and prepared. Come. Now Jesus is saying, here's what this entails. This is not just a, yeah, just come and eat it and then leave. But this requires commitment. It requires a word we used a few weeks ago, repentance. Repentance. Now verse 25 sets the scene for us. And there went great multitudes with him. This, this reminds us of the overall scene of Jesus slowly making his way to Jerusalem, the journey to Jerusalem. He's probably in the, the Transjordan region, uh, just on the, on the uh, eastern bank of the Jordan River, a region known as Perea, slowly making his way towards Jerusalem for his crucifixion. And there's huge multitudes of people doing the same thing, right? The entire nation would gather for those festivals in Jerusalem. And they're traveling with Jesus. Jesus is like a magnet. He is dynamic. He teaches with authority. He heals. His teaching has rich illustrations. People loved being with Jesus. Everywhere he goes, there's great multitudes, huge crowds following behind him, traveling with him as he goes towards Jerusalem. But here's the issue. These crowds are crowds of simply curious hangers-on, right? They're just there for the, 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 you know, the feeding of the 5,000 and the, the miracles and the interesting messages. But they're not really committed to the person of Jesus, right? They've not actually submitted themselves to the kingship of Jesus, they enjoy his dynamic teaching, yes. They enjoy the spectacle of his powerful miracles. They enjoy just the energy of being part of a big crowd, right? There's lots of people. They want to be part of it as well. Jesus is on his death march. But they're treating this like it is a parade, right? Yay, candy, and this is going to be fun. Where Jesus is like, no, take your cross, and this is, this is serious. It requires commitment. This text, it's a sobering text. It is a reality check. It's one that makes us, should make us step back and say, am I a disciple of Jesus? And by the way, disciple is the same word to describe a Christian, to describe a believer. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. If you are a disciple, you are a believer. In the book of Acts, Luke says disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. If you say, I'm a Christian, what you are saying is, I meet what this text is saying. I have truly come to Jesus in faith and I am following him as a disciple. So if we must be disciples, what does it mean? What does it require to be a disciple? Well, let me just give you four requirements this morning. First one is this, to be a disciple, right? To be a, a follower of Jesus, to be a genuine Christian, you must reorient your affections, right? Reorient your affections. Being a Christian is not just about checking a box it's not just about, okay, well, I made a sort of a one-time decision. No, it's about your entire heart being reoriented to love Jesus. That's going to be the, the result of that. So verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, and yet, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. He says, okay, you want to come to me? And you're like, oh, I'm with Jesus. I'm a disciple. He says, but if you don't hate your family, you cannot be my disciple. Now, that, that sounds rather shocking, doesn't it? It seems rather jarring. By the way, who's Jesus addressing? He's addressing the multitudes, not, not, not those who are his followers, not the 12. This is not about a, uh, here's the stairway to the next level of Christian commitment, but this is about the doorway into the house itself. Here's all these crowds, these hangers-on, these people who are fascinated with Jesus, but have not actually come to faith in Jesus. And he says, if you want to follow me, 
You've got to hate your family. You're like, well, that's an awesome text for Father's Day. Thanks a lot. We appreciate it. No. What does he mean by this? It's jarring. It's shocking. That, that, that is meant to, to, to wake us up from our spiritual stupor. To hate family? How, how does that work? Jarring as that sounds, when Jesus uses the word hate, he doesn't mean positive, raging hatred and active malice for our families. He's not saying go out and just detest your family and yell at them and be angry towards them. Why do I say that? Well, for one thing, I believe Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. This is meant to be shocking to get people's attention. He does this, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hey, if you're right, I offend you. Literally gouge it out of your head. You're like, really? Is he meant that? No, that's not meant to be taken literally. That's meant to be a statement of hyperbole to make us step back and realize fighting sin is costly. Let me, let me just prove this to you, that when he says hate, he, he doesn't mean active hatred, but rather what he means here is you need to love Jesus supremely more than even family. Listen, the, the, the individuals we all most naturally love in life are family, right? We typically don't need someone to tell us, hey, you need to love your family. We, we naturally do that. Even those who are not Christians naturally love their families. Parents naturally love their children. Children naturally love their parents, unless there is just you know, complete total dysfunction and hard-heartedness. That's the normal order of things. Jesus is saying, love for me as the master and Lord and Messiah needs to be first. By comparison, your love for family is like hatred. Over in the parallel passage in Matthew, jump over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 uses slightly different language to say the same thing. In verse 37, Matthew 10 and verse 37. Whereas in Luke, Jesus says, you must hate family. Here he says, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So here what he says, and we're using the Bible as a commentary on itself. Jesus in Matthew says, If you love your family more than me, you're not worthy of me. So what is Jesus saying here? You must love me first and foremost. Here's the other consideration. It's this idea of love and hatred in in Semitic idiom, in Hebrew idiom, is to say, here's a contrast. So reference, we want to jot this down, Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31. We find out that Jacob loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. Remember, he has these two wives. It's kind of a messed up story, but he loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. That's what verse 30 says of Genesis 29. And in verse 31, it says, when God saw that Jacob hated Leah. So there we get a definition of what what is meant by hatred is to love less. Not so much active hatred. That helps us, by the way, with the phrase, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Right? God's love for Jacob was intense and special and particular and focused, where Esau's passed over. Not that God actively hated Esau, but he loved Jacob in a saving kind of way and passed over Esau. Now, we also have to understand this. The Bible is not going to contradict itself. Jesus affirmed the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Right? That's not consistent with go and hate them. He also said, love your enemies. So what Jesus is saying here in verse 26 is not, well, just go out and hate and just trash your family. But he says, love me so much that by comparison, your love for family is in second place. What he is demanding is a reorientation of our affections from the things that our affections would naturally be set on. Our affections naturally are on ourselves. 
That's why he says, and your own life. We all naturally love ourselves. We don't need to be told to love ourselves more, right? The problem is not too much self-esteem. It's probably too much self-focus. He says, you naturally love family, naturally love your own life. You need to reorient your affections to where you love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and family in a second place. Your love for family comes after your love for Christ. And by the way, not just in sort of like your Twitter profile, like a, you know, Jesus and then family and then country or, or what, no, in a real tangible kind of way. Now, what would this have meant for Jesus' audience? If they chose to follow Jesus and say, that guy's the Messiah, they would have been most likely kicked out of the synagogue. They would have been cut off, ostracized from their community. They would have been disowned by their families. So to say, I'm going to love Jesus first and foremost, would have been for many of these people practically to say goodbye to their families, and they would have been regarded as dead. In fact, it was not an uncommon practice for Jewish people at this time if somebody became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, to hold a mock funeral for them, to say, you are dead to me. It's kind of like the Amish idea of shunning, right? You walk away, you're done, you're out of the family. To love Jesus meant lose your family. J.C. Ryle put it well. He says, the Christian must be prepared to offend his family rather than offend Christ. You know, see, loving Jesus. I love Jesus first and foremost and then my family. Okay, are you willing to confront a family member with their lost condition and call them to Jesus Christ? Some of you are in that position. You have family members, parents, cousins, brothers, sisters who have rejected the gospel, who don't want Jesus And you know the gospel and you have that relationship, that opportunity to present the truth to them. But you're like, I'm afraid to do that because I might lose the relationship. Question, do you love Jesus first or your family first? That's a tough question, right? And we need tact and wisdom and knowing on how we go about sharing the gospel. But what is more important? Sometimes loving Jesus more than family will will mean refusing to support a wrong decision your child makes. Listen, we all naturally want to support our kids and be there for them, but they're making a decision. You're like, that's a wrong decision. I can't support that. I love you, but I can't support that. And they may say, I'm going to go trash you on social media. I'm never going to talk to you again. Loving Jesus more than family may mean saying, I will not give my condoning your sin. Sometimes it will mean confronting a loved one engaged in sin. Sometimes it will mean supporting your son and daughter where they say, I believe God's calling me to go be a missionary to Nigeria, and they're going to be thousands of miles away in a dangerous place. The natural tendency of any parent is like, no, I want you to be safe. I want you to stay close. You say, if I love Jesus more, I'm going to support what Jesus wants in their life more than anything. Now, here's the irony. The best way to love your family is to hate your family in the sense that Jesus describes hate. The best way to love your family is to say, I love Jesus more than my family. Now, that's counterintuitive. We say, if I'm going to love my family, they're first, and my kids are on a pedestal, and we go to every soccer game, and we make sure they have everything that they need, and then sort of try and slide church in there. No, the way to really love your family is to love Jesus. Listen, we as Christians in our secular anti-family world, we rightly rise to the defense of the family. God's the one who created the family. The family was God's idea, and it is under attack by Satan in our world today because Satan hates everything that God ordained. We see we're in the middle of Pride Month. That is a direct assault on God's idea of the family. We live in a culture that can't define anymore what a man or a woman is. We live in a society today that is 
is trying to sort of groom children and, and all of these crazy, perverted, unbiblical ideas. And we rise and say, the family's good, the family's important, but if we're not careful, we can treat the family as if it is the most important thing and the essence of Christianity is being all about family. The best way to love your family is to hate your family in the sense that you love Jesus first. The way to love your family best is to love Jesus most. The best way to care for your family is to be radically committed to Christ. Let me give you an example. In Colossians 1, verse 18, Paul says, Jesus is to be preeminent in all things. Number one in all things. Family, home, doctrine, theology, worldview. You say, well, does that mean you neglect your family? Well, Colossians 3, just like 50 verses later, he says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Fathers, teach your children. Children, be obedient to your parents. Recognizing the supremacy of Jesus does not mean that you neglect your family. Rather, it means you invest in your family. You will be a better dad, a better mom, a better parent. When you say, I'm going to love Jesus so much that I want my family to follow Jesus, it means you'll say, getting them to church is more important than getting them to the next soccer practice. It's going to mean saying, I I want them to learn God's word more than necessarily get a 4.0 GPA and a full-ride scholarship to the University of Alabama. Dads, the best way to love your kids is to point them to Jesus. On Judgment Day, it will not matter what their batting average was. It will not matter what their GPA was. It will not matter how good of a shot they were. It will not matter how many engines they can rebuild or tires they can change. By the way, those are all good things in and of themselves. But what will matter is did they come to faith in Jesus and fall in love with him? What are, you, what are you putting the emphasis on as you lead your home? What are you telling your children are important, is important? Because you can say, right, hey, God's important. And then in your decisions say, actually, other things are important. And the things you show by your decisions will carry far, far, far more weight and influence in their lives than the things that you say verbally and then contradict with your life. So lead your children. Invest time in them, yes. Teach them how to mow the lawn and do their homework. But do not neglect their soul. By the way, this is my longest point because I think it's most relevant for thinking about Father's Day. If you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to be a Christian, there must be a reorientation of your affections. Has your heart turned from loving sin and self to loving Jesus? Is, that, is your love for Jesus growing and your hatred for sin growing with it? One of the marks of genuine conversion But here's a second requirement. To be a disciple, not only must you reorient your affections. Verse 27, you must carry your cross. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we've dealt with this back in Luke chapter 9. Jesus emphasizes this idea a lot in Luke's gospel. Remember, he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. And he's saying, if you want to be one of my followers, one of my disciples, one of my learners, one of my emulators... You've got to bear your cross. Now, we use that phrase, well, this is my cross to bear, right? I've had a rough day at work, and man, my boss is horrible. That's my cross to bear. That's not how it would have come across to the original audience, either to Theophilus, Luke's reader, or to the people listening to Jesus. When they got the idea of bearing a cross, the picture was of a condemned criminal on his way to execution, a man on his way to the gallows, someone on his way walking down the hallway of the prison to the execution chamber, 
someone who is laying down on the gurney to be facing to face lethal injection, the man before the firing squad. That's the image. To bear the cross is to say, I'm on my way to be executed. Quite a powerful picture, quite a gory picture. The, the, the cross, an instrument of torture, an instrument of terror. It was the tangible, visible reminder of Rome's complete and utter domination over the ancient world. So to bear the cross is to say, I'm getting behind Jesus. He says, you're, you're coming behind me. I'm going to Jerusalem. You're going to Jerusalem as well. It's to say, I am ready to die with Jesus and for Jesus. The cross is not just the difficulties in life, but the difficulties in life that we face because of our commitment to Christ. Right? Everybody in the world has difficulties. People who know Jesus and people who don't know Jesus. People who are Christians, people who are not Christians. The cross is a symbol of those difficulties we face, the suffering we endure because of Jesus, right? So if you're not willing to bear that cross, you can't be my disciple. Again, for many of Jesus' original disciples, they would literally face martyrdom. There was a willingness to die for Jesus, to be faithful to him all the way to the end. And you say, now that seems like a steep price to pay. I don't know if I'm ready to pay that price. That's exactly Jesus's point. He's going to say, you need to count the cost before you say, yeah, I'll be a Christian. Just kind of glibly say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. He says, hang on. You need to hit pause. You need to evaluate and say, am I really ready to follow Jesus? We're going to have a baptism later here in the service. One of the things baptism pictures is the death and then the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus to say, I've died with Jesus when he was on that cross. It was as if I were on that cross. I have died to my old life, and I'm willing to follow him with my life today. If you have been baptized as a believer, by the way, baptism is meaningless if you're not a believer. It's just getting wet. It's something you do because you're a believer. You're saying to the world, I am a believer. Is you have, you have said, my life belongs wholly to Jesus. That's what your baptism says. That's the commitment that you are making when you enter the waters of baptism. You say, that seems like a steep price. Romans 8.32 says, For if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? He paid the ultimate price for us so that we would be his entirely. You're bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. Your life is not your own. You see, if your Christianity never costs, it's probably not real. If your Christianity just makes your life a little more comfortable and a little more easy and improves it on the fringes, but it doesn't ever cost you anything, it's probably not real. So a question to ask yourself if you're a Christian here today or you claim to be a Christian, what has it cost me to follow Jesus? What sins have I willingly gone to war against, sins that I love, because the Bible tells me to? What have I chosen to give up simply because Jesus is worthy? What friendships have I lost? What relationships have I been willing to put on the line? What adjustments have I been willing to make in my life that have actually been painful and costly and difficult? What sins have I been willing to confess what wrongs have I been willing to make right? What costly actions have I undertaken because of Jesus? And if nothing comes to mind, maybe it's time to step back to say, do I really believe in Jesus? Right? Have I really taken the step to follow him? Or am I just going along with the crowd? Right? There were a lot of people going along with the crowd. 
or am I really following Jesus for Jesus' sake? You see, the call of the gospel is not simply a call to a decision. It is a call into a relationship, a relationship that we've got to be willing to lay everything down for. Daryl Bach writes, If we cannot walk the path of rejection Jesus walked, then we are not ready for the journey of faith Jesus calls believers to take. Take up the cross. Die to the old life. Be willing to lay your life down for Jesus. It will cost you. Which brings us to a very logical point. Jesus now says, okay, you need to pause and count the cost, which brings us to our third requirement of being a disciple. Evaluation. We've got to evaluate. We've got to count the cost. If you're going to be a disciple, you must count the cost. So Jesus says in verse 28, four. He says, well, why am I telling you about these requirements? He says, I'm telling, these, telling you about these requirements so you don't just make a hasty, glib, shallow, temporary decision that neither saves you nor changes you. Verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to, to finish it? Jesus is going to give us several illustrations here that make a step that say, listen, counting the cost is a reasonable and important and crucial thing to do in so many areas of life. So he says, for example, you're going to come and build a tower. It comes from the realm of construction. You're like, hey, I want to build a shed in the backyard. You're like, I got $68 in the shed fund. Let's go ahead and start the problem. Well, that's not going to be enough money to do it, right? You might get like one two-by-four with as much as lumber is right now for $68. It's going to cost you some money. You need to go, go down to Lowe's and find out how much the supplies will be. You need to price it all out. You need to come up with a budget to say, yeah, I've got enough money to build this shed. Otherwise, you, you build half of it. It gets rained on and it starts rotting. And then you've got this rotting, decaying shed in your backyard. On the way to church, uh, whenever I come down this way, there's, there's a place that has a half-built shed. They, they, they framed it out. And then it's just sat there for the last year. And it just keeps on fading and looking worse and worse. And every time I look at that, I'm like, it seems like whoever did that is one of those people who starts stuff and doesn't finish it, right? Um, I'm really good at that, by the way. I start a lot more books than I finish. I start a lot more projects than I complete, right? I start a lot more diets than the ones I stick with. Can I get an amen on that? We, 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 we get that, right? It's easier to start something than it is to finish it. But Jesus warns us of the danger here. He says, verse 29, lest taply after he has laid the foundation, he's not able to finish it and behold, uh, and they that behold it shall begin to mock him, saying, this guy started, he didn't finish it. He says, okay, it, it, you start building your tower. It's probably a tower overlooking a vineyard. And you don't finish it, then people begin to mock and ridicule. You're like, okay, I can probably handle that. Remember what we said last week, ancient world is a shame honor society. Being shamed and mocked and ridiculed is like one of the worst things that can happen to you. Your honor being dragged through the mud because you're the kind of guy who starts building towers and doesn't finish them is bringing you down quite low on the social hierarchy, on the social ladder. He says, you don't want to be like that rash builder. He says, okay, so nobody, nobody goes out and builds a tower without first counting the cost. I'll give you a modern-day example. If you were to ever go to Pyongyang, North Korea, which I don't recommend for a number of, of reasons, but dominating the skyline of Pyongyang, North Korea, is an 105-story tower that was started in 1987, and North Korea, being that paragon of economic success that it is, was not able to finish it. So they built it until 1992, and then they had a you know, major famine because communism can't, doesn't work. It never has. And so here's this half-built, 1,000-foot, 105-story tower that's halfway done. 
And it just sat from 1992 until about 10, 15 years ago where they finally put glass around this tower. To this day, this huge pyramid-looking building dominates the, the skyline of Pyongyang that stands as a monument of the inefficiency of totalitarian Marxism. Right? We can all look at that and be like, there you go. You, you guys start stuff, you can't finish it. Okay, contrast that with our, you know, our society. Buildings go up just like that, and there's capital, and there's money. Things get done. We can think of examples like that all over the world of half-built structures that the people did not have the ability to complete. What Jesus is saying by this illustration is what matters in the Christian life is not merely the decision to start, but the determination to finish. There's plenty of people in our world today who have made professions of faith, prayed the sinner's prayer, said, I, yes, I'll follow Jesus. They go to church for three weeks, and then that's it. They're done. According to the New Testament, the New Testament is quite clear that saving faith is persevering faith. The kind of faith that will get you to heaven is the kind of faith that keeps trusting in Jesus. The kind of faith that will save you is a faith that bears fruit, that's why James says faith without works is dead. So if you're placing all of your hope this morning, you say, well, back when I was a kid and when I was eight years old, I, you know, I raised my hand in VBS, I believed in Jesus, but there's been no spiritual growth since then. There's been no persevering in the faith. There's been no fruit in your life. Chances are that is not real saving faith. Saving faith keeps trusting in Jesus, even when your health fails. How many people do you know that they believed in Jesus, then some trial came along, and they're like, I can't believe in God if that, if that happened. Listen, real saving faith keeps trusting in Jesus even when your health fails, even when you experience hypocrisy from so-called Christians. How many people have you met have said, I used to go to church, but they found out they were all hypocrites, so I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Real faith keeps trusting Jesus even when you are wronged by those who you thought were your friends. Listen, it's not the decision to start that matters, but the determination to finish. Coming to Christ is not merely a matter of walking an aisle, praying a prayer, or getting baptized. It's a matter of repentance and faith. Before you come to Jesus, count the cost. Coming to Jesus will mean you must forsake sin that you love. You might have to lose relationships that are precious to you. Following Jesus is right, but it is costly. Now we get a second illustration. Look at verse 31. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he, desire, he sends an ambassador and desires conditions of peace. So King A says, I'm going to go to war with King B. And then he realizes sort of halfway before they get, come to battle, oh wait, he outnumbers me. This is not going to turn out well. And so you have to scramble, send some ambassadors. Be like, we need peace. We need a peace treaty. The guy with 20,000 will basically be able to dictate terms to the guy with 10,000, right? He'll be able to say, all right, you're giving me this much territory. You're going under tribute. You're giving me you know, so many talents of silver every year. You're, it's going to be horrible for you. So you don't pick a fight with someone you're, you're not going to be able to beat, right? No king does that. You sit down first and you count the cost. In the first illustration, being, being sneered at by the neighbors is one thing. In the second, being conquered by another kingdom is another thing altogether. Jesus is saying the cost of failure is very, very high. The, the cost of failing to count the cost is enormous. You don't start wars with enemies larger than you. 
The wise king does not send his army into a meat grinder. Instead, he sends an emissary to come to terms with his attacker. What is Jesus warning against? He's warning against an ill-conceived, emotionally driven, hasty, ill-thought decision to become his disciple. He says those who engage in these short-term, shallow commitments to him are not truly, cannot be his disciples. It's a serious thing. Now, it gives us another illustration, verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. He gives us an illustration of tasteless salt. Okay, so salt, he says, is good. It's valuable. In the ancient world, salt was pretty much the sole preservative. No refrigeration. So you want to preserve something, you use salt. Very valuable. As today, they use salt for flavor, right? Like, there's plenty of food that you eat that if you don't have salt on it, it's kind of bland. But here's the issue. You might be able to get salt, say, from the Dead Sea. There's a lot of salt there that's mixed with a bunch of impurities, like gypsum. And it looks like salt, but it doesn't taste like salt. By the way, technically, salt, sodium chloride, it it can't lose its flavor. So Jesus is not saying, oh, salt loses its flavor, like, oh, Jesus, scientific buffoon. What he's describing is the perception that you buy some salt from the market and then you taste it and you realize, no, it's all the impurities. There's not any salt in this salt. Salt that loses its savor is not salt at all. That's the idea. The idea here uh, as well, lose its savor is the word that's normally translated to make foolish. Kind of ties back in with the previous illustration, right? Where you start building a tower and you don't finish it, you look foolish. You go to war against someone that you really can't beat and you have to surrender early, you look foolish. What Jesus is telling us through this illustration, he says, okay, the salt that doesn't have any flavor, it's not good for anything. You can't use it as fertilizer. You can't put it, on the, uh, you can't put it in the soil. You cast it out. You get rid of it. He's saying those would-be disciples who are simply part of the crowd but have not actually committed to Jesus, who say they have faith but don't actually trust him, who say, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus, but don't take up the cross, don't reorient their affections. This is going to be cast out. That's a symbol for judgment. Just as savorless salt is not actually salt, so faithless Christians are not actually Christians. Your Christianity, whatever admirable qualities it might possess, if it does not actually forsake sin and follow Christ, if it does not actually cling to the cross in faith, is useless on the day of judgment, useless in the end. You must count the cost. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Now, did you notice a pattern? It says the one who wants to build a tower, he sits down and counts the cost. The one who goes to war sits down, does the math. That that implies some serious consideration. I do get a little hesitant, a little bit concerned when there's evangelistic services that go on where people hear the gospel for the first time and then the preacher is just like, all right, raise your hand if you want Jesus. And they're like, boom, you're all saved. There's not been time to count the cost. Now, I get it. The Spirit can work in people's lives and bring them to faith. He does it in an instant. But all things being equal, coming to saving faith in Jesus requires consideration and thought and a counting of the cost. Typically speaking, hasty decisions do not last. Decisions you can make easily, you can unmake easily. By the way, I'm not suggesting that you can lose your salvation. Salvation is eternal. It is an eternal gift of God of eternal life. But I am suggesting that the decision to become a Christian can be faked, right? You can read the parable of the sower to get that. Let me hasten to come into a a final 
conditioned a final requirement to be a disciple. You've got to reorient your affections. Jesus has got to be first and foremost in your, in your, in your life. You've got to carry the cross. You've got to count the cost. But finally, you must renounce materialism. I skipped over verse 33. Jesus says, so likewise, okay, just as people must count the cost, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. This is the third and final, he cannot be my disciple clause. Did you notice how they become sort of more and more personal? In verse 26, if any man come to me, does not hate can't be my disciple. Verse 27, whosoever, it's a little narrower. Now he says, whosoever he be of you, of you. I'm speaking to the crowd. He says to, to you who are under the sound of my voice. He says, if you don't forsake all that you have, your possessions, you can't be my disciple. Luke is writing to most excellent Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus, but the title suggests He's at least a wealthy individual. More than likely, he is a well-placed Roman official. Here's a person with power, with prestige, with wealth. It should be no surprise, then, that Luke's gospel addresses that issue of wealth and our understanding of money and the dangers of materialism in ways that Matthew and Mark do not. We can think of Luke as the apostle to the wealthy. He's not saying, well, the wealthy cannot go to heaven, but he is saying wealth can pose a great barrier to trust in Christ. Think about our society. We live in the wealthiest society in all of human history. Even with inflation going on, even with the price of gas going through the roof, we are still living in the wealthiest place on the planet. And what you probably have noticed, those of you who have been around longer than I have, that our wealth has not made us trust God anymore. Right? Our money says, in God we trust, but it might as well say, in this God we trust. Right? It's so easy when we have lots of money to sort of think, okay, yeah, God's out there. I sort of trust him in a fuzzy, abstract way. But let's be honest, we're really trusting our, our bank accounts to get us through. Those who literally have to pray, give us a stay our daily bread, have a, oftentimes a greater sense of dependence on God than we who have enough money to get us through the month and then some. This is not to say that money itself is bad. But it is to say that money can very quickly grab hold of our hearts, that the love of money can become a root of all kinds of evil, right? That the greed and materialism can pose a great danger to spiritual life. Again, the parable of the sower. Jesus compares the love of money like weeds that come up and choke out the plant before it becomes fruitful. Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus had said, just back a page if you want to just jump back there, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. There's such a danger for us to equate our wealth, our worth rather, in our wealth and our value in what we possess. Luke 12, verse 33, Jesus had said, Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags that wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. Listen, if you just took a bunch of money and stuffed it under the mattress and left it there, it would actually become less valuable as time goes on because of what? Inflation, right? Moth and rust corrupts and thieves break through and steal. It's like putting money into a bag with holes. It's the way Haggai describes it. But you invest your, your wealth in eternity because by being generous. It's not going to lose value. It's going to gain value in an infinite manner. 
When Zacchaeus came to faith in Jesus Christ, you can read about that in Luke 19. Again, Luke's the only one who records for us the story of Zacchaeus. He was a swindler. He had gotten most of his wealth through corruption. When Jesus calls him to himself, what does Zacchaeus do? He says, I'm giving away half of my money, and those I've defrauded, I'm going to repay fourfold. You think, why is he only giving away half of his money? Because he needs the other half to make restitution. What was Zacchaeus's sin? What was gripping his heart and dominating his life? Greed. What did repentance look like? Generosity. So what Jesus is saying, you've got to forsake all that you have. Again, this is hyperbole. He's not saying we all must go take a vow of poverty and go become monks. Though, some people in church history have done that to the glory of God. The early church, for example, if you read in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, people literally sold everything they had and had everything in common to make sure that the poor were provided for. There is biblical precedent for that kind of thing. One of the ways to deal with the hold of materialism is through that kind of radical sacrificial generosity. But I don't believe that is required for all Christians. I don't think that's what Jesus is requiring here. That word forsake is the idea of renouncing interest in something. That's how the lexicon defines the word, to renounce interest in all that I have. Listen, you can have possessions as long as your possessions don't have you. You can have money as long as your money does not have you. Our hearts are deceptive, so it's hard sometimes to discern if that's the case or not. But it is to renounce interest in. It's as we sang earlier, let goods, okay, wealth, and kindreds go this mortal life also. We sang that in our first hymn today. Everything, renouncing everything for the glory of God. If you struggle with loving money, here's the way to break the hold of money and materialism in your heart. Give it away. Generosity. You can break the shackles of materialism through radical generosity like the early church did. You can also do it through regular generosity. Here's what I mean by that. Top item on your monthly budget is what I'm going to give away. And it's not just the spare change or what is left over. It's the given in the budget. Right? That will stretch your faith. That will make you say, how much money do I really need to live? What are the luxuries in my life? I'm going to be generous in giving my money to support not only the work of the Lord, but the people he brings across my path. Very simply, loving money more than Jesus will send you to hell. Right? Trusting money more than you trust Jesus will send you to hell. Coming to faith in Jesus means I put my trust in him and I love him. And family takes second place and wealth takes not even third place but bottom place where it is a servant and not a master. You say, I'm not materialistic. I just spend all of my time you know, worrying about the boat, worrying about the house, worrying about my clothes, worrying about sports, worrying about entertainment, worrying about comfort, looking at my 401k, freaking about the stock market, but I'm not materialistic. Chances are, if you're constantly worried about your home looking like HGTV and worrying about your 401k just being awesome so you can retire in wealth and ease, materialism might have gripped your heart. It's not wrong to have those things, but it is wrong for those things to have you. Few things index your heart like your budget and your checkbook. You say, oh, Jesus is really important to me. Show me your budget. Show me your budget. How does your budget reflect the importance of Christ in your life. By the way, that's presuming you have a budget. You have a budget. It's a good thing. A tool to make sure you're managing God's money well. 
Jesus was important to me. Show me your checkbook or your bank statement. What are you actually spending money on? Is it all you and entertainment and stuff? Or is a large portion of it others and kingdom work? Here's the point. Jesus calls us to a brand new identity. The old identity markers of this world, family, you know, who's your clan? What's your last name? He says, I'm calling you to a a new family. This is it, the Cloverleaf family, the family of God made up of people of every ethnicity and nation on earth. So that's your family. That's a more fundamental identity for you as a Christian than your own flesh and blood family. That's incredible. What a comfort for those who have been rejected by family to know that the family of God is a real thing. The old identity markers of wealth, who you are is how much money you have and where you work. Jesus is like, no, you renounce wealth. What, what, What your identity marker is, you're a follower of Jesus. You're you're one who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Repentance and faith, following the cross-bearer, Jesus. The only way that you and I can be forgiven of our sin is by Jesus dying on the cross for us. Now, we could misunderstand this passage to say, well, we're saved by our commitment. If we just commit just enough, we'll be saved. No, 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 no. We cannot be saved by commitment. There is no amount of commitment that can atone for the sins we have committed. It's impossible. Only the blood of Jesus can atone the sins that we have committed. Only the death of Jesus can take the place of the lives that we have lived in rebellion against him. We come to faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. We trust his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But listen, coming to Jesus will result in this kind of life, of loving Jesus more, of taking the cross, of counting the cost of renouncing materialism. This is what it means to be a Christian. This, by the way, is why we take church membership seriously here at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. A church, by definition, is made up of people who have genuinely put their faith and trust in Jesus. And that's why we limit membership to only those who have convincingly put their faith and trust in Jesus. It's why baptism follows repentance and faith. It expresses commitment. It invites accountability. So here's my question to you. Have you come to Jesus this kind of way? You say, well, no, no, I haven't. Today's the day to come to Christ in repentance and faith, to turn away from loving things other than Jesus, to turn away from living for comfort rather than the cross, to turn away from materialism to trust in the master. And as a Christian, this is what the the path of Christianity looks like day in and day out choosing to love Jesus more, day in and day out, taking up the cross to die to sin and self, day in and day out, forsaking the hold of materialism. And yes, there's ups and downs in the Christian life, and there's days where materialism does grip us more and love for self grips us more than it should. But coming back once again on the Calvary road behind Jesus. So will you reorient your affections? For what do you sacrifice? There's a good measure of where your affections are. In what do you invest your time and your money and your effort and your emotional energy? What is non-negotiable in your life? That'll tell me what is truly your greatest love. Will you renounce materialism? Will you carry the cross? Will you count the cost? This is what it means to be a Christian. Dabs, we started with you today, and I want to end with you. Will you follow Jesus like this? Will you put your foot... Your, your, your feet in the footprints of Jesus in front of you.
and say to your kids, follow me as I follow Christ. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts as we sing our final hymn. May we truly be able to say,